so much Trinity this morning, right? This is a Christian church. It's good. It's amazing. I can't help but think, and I'd love to share with you just a way that the, the church has prayed and praised the Trinity from the beginning. This, this famous statement, it's called the, the Gloria Patri, right? It's just glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen? This is our God. Anyways, my name is Ethan Fordham. I, I serve as an elder here, and I'm grateful to be with you this morning as we kick off our series, if we, as we kick off our seven-year series in Genesis. <laughs> Just kidding. It's only going to be like 15 months. How do we do that, right? How, did we, how are we doing that? 28 chapters in Matthew, four years? Genesis is 50 chapters. It's like some kind of time warp. I don't know. Anyways, friends, we love origin stories, don't we? Why else would we need something like four origin like Batman movies? How many time, times do we have to see Bruce Wayne's parents get shot? Or we need like three Star Wars prequels, right? Little Annie. He's going to grow up to be Darth Vader. We already know how it ends, right? I think that it's because we have a sense that our origins matter. Where we come from matters. Right? Why does, and points if you know the answer to this question, why does Mike Maisie love the Steelers? <laughs> <laughs> He does not get points. <laughs> it's because of his grandparents. They were from Pittsburgh. His origin matters. It's shaped his life. Why don't Gabby, my wife and I, why don't we joke about divorce? It's because we're both from divorced homes. Why, if you're married here, why does the thing, like, why does your spouse keep doing that thing that annoys you? And why does it annoy you? Well, if I had to guess, it's probably because of your origin. Our origins matter. Whether they knew it or not, the ancient Israelites were in need of an origin story. We want to read Genesis in context, right? Who's writing Genesis? It didn't just fall out of the sky. Moses is writing Genesis. And Moses had just led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Now, they had spent several hundred years in Egypt. They were in need of an origin story, right? That all of that time in Egypt probably crossed some wires, maybe confused some things. They knew who they were, that they were the people of God, that they were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they needed more than that. They needed an origin story. Friends, they were going 
into the promised land, which was filled with unknown gods and unknown enemies. The Israelites were in need of an origin story. I think we also need an origin story. And this morning, we see how every story, yours, mine, the Israelites, is a part of God's cosmic drama. So I want to invite Tim Froberg to come up. He's going to read our passage this morning. Please open to the first page in your Bibles, Genesis 1. The reading this morning comes from the Old Testament book of Genesis, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Spirit's assistance this morning. Lord God, we come to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, just as you shine the light into darkness, shine light into our darkness. Enlighten our minds and our hearts that we may see and behold your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've learned something from watching movies over the years, funny enough. That's when a movie begins, if it's worth its salt, that the opening scene is very intentional. It acts as a thesis for the movie. It's sort of telling you where things are going. And it's really no different here when we open up in Genesis. We read, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Full stop. In the beginning, God. Before we get to sun, moon, stars, before the sprouting of vegetation and the swarming of bees, there is God. And this God, who's about to create everything, is the most significant character in the story he's about to tell. He's at the center of everything coming next. And the name of God in this place is Elohim. It's a name that means power and might. What an appropriate name for the being that's going to create everything. This one God, he is power and might. Moses wanted the Israelites to know that God, Elohim, was in the beginning. He was the one full of power and might. And what's interesting about this is that there was no one else in the beginning. See, in other religions during Israel's time, there was more than one ordinarily, usually, in the beginning. Whether it's Egyptians, who they had known, the Canaanites, who they were going to come to know, or the Babylonians even later, there was always more than one 
in the beginning. There was no supreme deity in the ways that Elohim was presenting himself. These other gods always needed help, so often they were just creating other gods. In the beginning of other religions, there were the gods. So the Israelites needed the record set straight for them. There was no pantheon of gods. The God who brought them out of Egypt, he was the true God. And there was no one other beside him. He alone was in the beginning. But the God who was in the beginning was not alone. Augustine, writing in the 5th century, said this about the phrase, in the beginning. He said, God made heaven and earth in the beginning. Not in the beginning of time, but in Christ. For he was the word with the Father, through him and through whom and in whom all things were made. That's your surprise that we're getting to Jesus that early. First phrase, first phrase in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, in the beginning, that we see already the Trinity in the beginning. You know, this is interesting, right? I mean, the Jews confessed one God throughout their whole history, monotheism, in the, right? One God, no other. And yet we see the triune nature of God was hinted at in all of the pages of the Old Testament. It doesn't seem obvious here. We read in the beginning, our sort of instinct isn't to go Trinity. And yet, that's exactly where John goes. As we've already heard this morning in our call to worship. John, in his gospel, he opens up this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Friends, the Israelites needed to know how their God was different from all the other gods of the nations. We also need to know why our God is different from any other God that could be presented to us That in the fullness of time, this God, the one true God, revealed himself. He was the one in the beginning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends, in the beginning, God. What does this mean? That there is no creation without the work of the triune God. There is no you There is no me, nor birds or bees, nor anything without the work of the triune God in the beginning. The origin story of the universe begins with the true God. And he is not silent or distant nor weak. We see in this that the true God is a powerful creator God. Back to the first phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything from the seemingly infinite expanse of the universe 
to the microorganisms or atoms that take and shape and form everything. God created everything. We can easily pass over this. Just as an assumption. Or for the Israelites encountering various other religions from Egypt to Canaan to Babylon. For them, the God of Israel, Elohim, He created everything. Was a revolutionary idea in their context. Right? The Egyptian creation myths. What's fascinating too, for archaeology, you can look these things up. It's fascinating. Ancient Near Eastern creation myths. You could look them up. We have clay tablets and different uh, artifacts that tell these stories. So ancient Egyptian creation myths, right? Depending on who was in charge in Egypt at any given time, the, there's a sort of supreme deity that goes on to create a bunch of deities, and that deity is always changing depending on who's in charge. And he's always making these other gods according to physical means. They were dependent, these other gods. Babylonian creation myths, myths which are some of my personal favorites, tell of uh, uh, Apu and Tiamat getting together and creating the, sort of the pantheon, a bunch, of, a bunch of gods. And then some of those gods rebel against Apu and Tiamat's like in favor of it. And then, and then she's not in favor of it. So then she's going to go after the other gods. But then there's a, another god that rises up, Marduk. And what does Marduk do? He loads up an arrow, he shoots it at Tiamat, and splits her in half. And then takes her corpse and creates everything. And then he takes the bodies of those other gods that had been on Tiamat's side, and he creates humanity. Marduk sounds cool, but he also sounds like he needs an awful lot of things to do anything. He also sounds temperamental. They're about to go into the land of Canaan. And in Canaan, I'm not, I'm not really straight on the creation myths, but what's interesting about the Canaanite gods is they were super territorial. Almost as if you could stand here one moment and say, I worship this god, the Asherah, for instance, and then you could step over here and say, well, now I worship this god, the Baal or whoever. That there was no one God over everything. These are the stories that are around Israel. They defined the sort of religious and cultural context in which they existed. I think it's not much different than the creation stories that any one of us can encounter in our own lives. Right? Are we simply the byproducts of an unguided evolutionary process? Or maybe we're the eternal spirits of gods or maybe aliens. No. Maybe more personal. Maybe you're self-made. Master of your own destiny. Friends, God created everything and is its soul maker and ruler. He created everything. 
without anyone's help. He created everything out of nothing. Not like these other gods who have got to sort of get together some stuff to make some other stuff. No, our God made everything out of nothing. That in one moment, there was nothing. And in the next moment, there was everything. God speaking it into existence. He is the sole creator and source of all that there is. That's how powerful he is. He could speak everything from nothing. Have you ever created something from nothing? If you would like to have a fun conversation about that philosophically, Dan Murphy is in the back row. I'm sure he would love to talk about how it's nonsense to say we could create something from nothing. We can't. We can't create something from nothing. Especially since we're physical. We're already something. But yet that's who God is. He creates something from nothing. He is the powerful creator God. The source of everything. This true and powerful God created everything. He looked over the formless void. Sending his spirit to hover over everything. And he powerfully spoke. By his spirit in his word, God forms and fills a kingdom creation. Boom. Day one, God spoke and formed light and separated it from darkness. Day two, God spoke and formed the sky, sea, and land, separating the sky from the seas and the sea from dry land. Day three, God spoke, forming vegetation to sprout up from the dry land. Day four, God spoke and he filled the heavens with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, God spoke and he filled the seas with sea creatures and the land with, or sorry, in the, in the skies with birds. Day six, he spoke and filled the land with animals and with mankind. He spoke everything into existence. He formed and filled everything. Not only that, but the true God who powerfully spoke everything into existence made everything good. He made everything good. He made good light. He made good skies. He crafted good mountains and good seas. He made good birds and good bees. The powerful creator God is a good God who made good things. And he made a good kingdom creation. Gosh, I feel like just in our day and age, there's so much in our culture and society that wants to look at the things that God made and say, no, not good. We have a better way. Our way is good. Friends, this designer, this artist, this storyteller, he defines the terms. He says what's good. And he made all sorts of good things. And we might ask, 
Who is God making all of this for? We know and we have to confess it's not for himself. Right off the bat, what is something that sets God apart from any false god is that our God is in need of nothing. He is in need of no one. It's actually such good news for me to tell you this morning that our God does not need you. He does not need me. That's good news. We do not worship a needy God. And yet this true God, who made everything good by his powerful word, made his kingdom creation for his kingdom representatives. Let's look closely at verses 26 through 28. We read, of, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In, his image. in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. It's if the, the text goes it slows down we got popping into existence boom 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 and the text slows down we have this let us create man in our image let us create man in our image after our own likeness it's our creator king who's creating a kingdom creation. He sets a crown jewel to sit atop this good kingdom creation. Kings and queens made in God's own image. The image of God is this. That men and women have the capacity to be in a unique relationship with God and act as His kingdom representatives in his kingdom creation. We see this, right? They were to be in a right relationship with God, which would then transform the way they related to one another and to creation around them. They were called to exercise dominion over creation. Dominion, interesting, like it's a ruling like, uh, activity, Right? Who has dominions but kings and queens? They were to exercise dominion over creation, over the whole earth. That God wanted to do something with his kingdom creation, and that mankind was going to carry it out as his representatives, as his kings and queens. That they were going to create also their own things. That they would use their minds to display God's glory, that they would make art, philosophize, sing, make music, that they would use their hands to farm, build cities, harness energy, engineer new inventions. I like what, what one author said, Peter Lightheart says that the image of God is, is almost found in, in the activity of Making things we don't need to make 
and saying things we don't need to say. That we are creatures capable of more than acting on pure instinct. We create. We think. We engineer. We form relationships. We love. Not only do we love, we, we write poetry about love. It's the image of God in us. We see that he tasked every man and woman to carry it out together. That men and women were going to live in harmony, set with one mind and heart on the purposes of God to expand his kingdom into all of creation. And in connection to this, right, he says, be fruitful and multiply. That there's the need for more representatives in God's kingdom creation. Right? He creates Adam first. We realize that's one of the instances in the creation story where something is not good. Wait, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So he makes Eve. And how we have this beautiful king and queen, a man and a woman, they're going to cultivate this kingdom garden as God's representatives. But that's not it. There's still need for more. There's a lot of work to do. So there's need for more workers. He says, be fruitful and multiply, that men and women were going to have children. Yes, pre-fall, even then, men and women were going to have children, and that they were going to cultivate this kingdom together as God's representatives, that they were going to bring the glory of God into all of the earth. From the procreation of children to harnessing the energy of the sun in a nuclear reactor. We are called to cultivate God's creation kingdom as his representatives, as his kings and queens. I hope you see how that transforms your identity this morning. That everything you do in your life, when you pick up a, to up a tool to fix that thing that keeps breaking, maybe when you write a little poem just to express affection for a loved one. Or you even ask the question, why do I exist? And you begin to explore. Whatever it is that you do in your life, you do it because you're made in God's image. You do it because you're made in God's image. So it's important for us to ask a question. How do we act as his representatives, specifically Christians in the world? Friends, we live for God's glory. We don't build our own kingdoms. We build God's kingdom. We don't take the credit. We give glory to the Lord. Friends, as those created in God's image, we live and breathe for our God. Amen? Here we have the pinnacle of God's creation. Men and women created in His image. This true God who powerfully created His kingdom creation through His word and spirit created everything for the purpose of His kings and queens representing Him in the world. But you might want to ask me at this point, Ethan, how old is the earth? 
that's a worthwhile question to ask. But I wonder if it's actually the question to ask here. Do you think Israel, right, when they're receiving this revelation from God, when Moses is telling them about this, that they're like, oh, wow, the universe is only 3,000 years old, and then moved on. I would suspect that's not what they had in mind. That they heard about this God. That he was the true God. And that all the other gods of the nations were false gods. And that they were created in his image. And therefore had to act as his representatives in the world. That this God, who was writing this cosmic drama, had them to act as his people in the world. That is what they had in mind, I would suspect, if I had to speculate. But there's still some to consider. Because Genesis 1 does create a conundrum for people. Like it, Genesis 1, for some people, can create a, a real threat. We hear all sorts of things about, about science, or this, or, or that, about our origins, or whatever. And it can create a conflict for some. But I just want to lay out a, a few things to ease that conflict. And I, I don't have this written down, so I hope I say it right. And it was just a random quote that I saw from Augustine. But he said, truth is like a lion. You don't defend a lion. It needs no defending. The truth will defend itself. And I think that we can believe that this morning. The first thing we want to consider is that God created everything. Full stop. End of story. No matter the origin or how you want to arrange things or however you're looking at it, God is the source of the material universe and of the supernatural, right? He did create the angels. God is the source of creation. He created everything. Non-negotiable. That's it. God created everything. Second, because God created everything, God and science are not in conflict. All science is God's science. He made it. The universe functions because God made a functioning universe. He made it to work in a particular way. He made it to be known. And even in the sense, like, like we live in a universe that makes sense, it's because we, li we, we live, uh, he made a universe that makes sense because he's a God that makes sense. He doesn't make things that don't make sense. Friends, as, as Christians, we should be interested in science. It's the study of natural revelation. It's not this sort of like neutral, sort of like third-party observer. It's natural revelation. It's, it's God speaking. So we should be interested in science. And even as I studied this passage, both Augustine in the 5th century and Calvin in the 16th century expressed their desire to know more about the nature of the created world as mankind's scientific efforts progressed. Even back then, they were like, we want to know more. The Bible tells us so much. We want to know more. We want 
science to progress. It's a good thing. Right? Science is good. Now, we live in a world where mankind might think that it's progressed scientifically away from a God explanation. Friends, that's just not true. And really, any attempt at constructing that worldview is frankly unsatisfying. You can tell me that my keys, if I throw them across the room, will fall according to certain principles, properties. You can't explain to me in any satisfactory way why I love my wife. It's unsatisfying to look at the universe as if the material world is all that there is. Friends, our God, He is the source of all things and explains everything in a wonderful, beautiful, and good way. Whatever we find, we know God did it and that He did it according to certain principles. Third, natural Revelation, so science, the created world, and special revelation, the scriptures, are not the same thing. Therefore, the Bible is not a science textbook. God says a lot in the opening chapters of Genesis, but he doesn't say everything. He doesn't tell us every single detail. And friends, as studying this, there are at least eight, at least, eight ways of reading the opening chapter of Genesis. Some of them are coming from a young earth perspective. The earth is basically 6,000 years old, and either science is going to show that it's 6,000 years old, or it's created with apparent age. Or they're, they're coming from old earth perspectives, right? Well, if the earth says that it's old, then it must be old, right? But there are at least eight different ways of approaching Genesis 1. And for the most part, all of those ways are being considered by serious, orthodox, Christ-honoring Christians. We should have so much grace, willingness, charity, curiosity even when looking at this marvelous text and this marvelous world that God made. Amen? What's interesting, too, is no matter which way you shake it, every single way of approaching this text leaves us with a lot of complicated and interesting questions. Worthy of consideration. But if you want to know more about that, ask me after service. I'll waste your time. But friends, all of this, after all of that, what can we say this morning about ourselves? What can we tell our neighbors? What's the utmost importance in Genesis 1? Friends, our God created everything by his powerful word for his glorious purposes. If you leave here with anything this morning, leave here with that. Our God created everything by His powerful Word for His glorious purposes. 
This is a message to transform your life, your children's lives, your neighbor's life. Our God created everything by His powerful Word for His glorious purposes. Friends, this idea is further evident in the last day of creation. Open up chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work. Uh, all the God, on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. God rested when He had finished His work. What does this mean? Was God sleepy? You can answer that question. No, no, no. God wasn't sleepy. He didn't like need a break. He wasn't like taking a smoke break. Like, so what does it mean that God rested? I like what Calvin had to say. He said, God was the artificer, the architect, the bountiful father of a family who had omitted nothing essential to the perfection of his edifice. That there was nothing omitted. Creation was exactly what it needed to be. So the work was done. And he rested. We see this is a glorious blessing on God's part. We read that he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That he worked for six and rested for one. This became a, an incredibly important factor in Israel's life. See, in the other creation myths, right, when people were created, they were created basically for slave labor. They were created to satisfy the insatiable desires of the gods, right, to offer sacrifices that would waft up into their nostrils and basically keep them from going mad for another day. False gods are like that, aren't they? Demanding, always wanting more, always requiring of you every last drop of your energy. I can imagine we have some false gods in our own life that do this exact thing to us. Gods that we come to confess. That we, we give up. Nothing that we walk away from, right? We wrestle with this all the days of our life. Because the life, our life is a perpetual exchanging. No to false gods. Yes to the true God. But we see how good this God is. We see how good He is in His work week. And rest day, the Lord revealed a six-in-one pattern for human life. Six days, you'll cultivate the earth. Six days, you'll cultivate culture. You'll make things. You'll bring things about. You'll engineer. You'll paint the house. You'll take the kids to soccer practice. But one day will be rest unto God. A time to cease from labor. And rest in the Lord. 
I often hear from people, we're always fighting for rest. I just need a little bit of rest. I'm restless. I'm tired. I got to deal with this. I got to deal with that. I'm tired. I, I, Gabby and I cleaned out the basement yesterday. I'm tired. I need a little rest. We think we need a vacation. We need to break away from people. Friends, look at what God does. He finishes his work and he looks upon all of creation and he rests. He was satisfied with his work. Do you see how that should shape our understanding of rest? How that should shape our rest? How should our rest be shaped by God's rest? Friends, we look upon all that God has done for us. And we stop. And we rest. That's what we do when we worship on Sunday morning. I'm sure you have lots of things you could be doing right now. Nothing is as important for your soul than to rest in the Lord. It's what we do when we pause throughout the week, even. Little tidbits, moments of rest. We pray, sing, read. We rest. We look upon all that God has made. We find rest for our souls. Friends, we need rest because we're restless. Right? We're in the most unique time in the Bible. The beginning of everything. Sin has not factored in yet. And yet we know sin will become a factor. And sin will disrupt that rest. Sin has disrupted our rest. It's made us restless. The world has become restless as it's become alienated from God and His rest. But friends, God created everything in the beginning with the end in mind. If you want to find rest for your souls, Jesus comes on the scene, right? This word who was in the beginning with God, the one through whom all things were made. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That this Jesus, that He, the Creator of the world, enters into His own creation to die on His cross and restore rest. To come into His creation and recreate everything. Just as we read this morning in our shirts of pardon, if you are Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That Christ has come to recreate everything. That God's purposes for His image-bearing kings and queens was to put on display His Son, Jesus Christ. The image of God and King of the universe. Friends, if you don't know this Jesus, He made you, He sustains you, 
but you have need for recreation. To leave the old gods behind and embrace the true God in Jesus. If you come to him, he will give you rest for your soul. And this is what we see. Genesis to Revelation, from creation to recreation. That our God created everything by his powerful word for his glorious purposes so that we can rest in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you and we confess our utmost need for you. That you alone are God and beside you there is no other. That Lord God, we are always constructing other gods that we are always making idols, that we often place ourselves in front of you. But, oh, Lord God, place us before you. Place us at your feet. That we may know who we are. That we may love you and worship you. Our creator. Our sustainer. The one through whom we were made. The one by whom we were made. The one for whom we exist. Shape us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we have the opportunity